If you listened to the trailer for this podcast, you heard me mention that we sometimes had mice in our camper. Over the course of the year we lived on the road, I probably killed over 300 mice, not exaggerating. I could never figure out how they were getting in. On many separate occasions, I bought out the local Kroger grocery store's supply of steel wool and spent the better part of a rest day stuffing all the holes in the bottom of the camper that I could find. But it never worked. I came to believe that mice are capable of fitting through not only small spaces, but impossibly narrow cracks, pinheads, empty screw holes. Essentially, that mice can operate. So, defeated in my quest to keep them out altogether, I set out to at least barricade them within the stove, the underside of the sink, and inside the adjoining drawer they always found their way into. I settled on being able to hear their incessant chewing at night, but knowing they would never inadvertently walk across my face. And to do this, I developed a highly sophisticated system. Each night, I covered the edges of our oven and the opening in the vent of the built-in propane heater with duct tape. Then I removed the metal stovetop racks, like what's on a Coleman camping stove, placed our two bowls face down, one to each cover a burner, and then the jet boil pot face down to cover the third burner. I also removed anything remotely chewable from this zone. Paper towels, playing cards, plastic bags. Every night, I set one mouse trap in the drawer and one under the sink behind our popcorn bowl. And like Princess Fiona, I felt best if all of this happened before nightfall. When it was time for bed, I would put on my headphones and play Gregory Allen Isakov's 2009 album, This Empty Northern Hemisphere, on my phone and close my eyes, willing myself to fall asleep before the inevitable sound of chewing began. Sometimes I would lay awake at night listening to them chew, trying to figure out some meaning from the cadence. That grating sound would keep my heart in a low-grade fist clench feeling around the clock. The traps were a brutal compromise in favor of a few quiet hours. I think I hated the intrusion so much because they were forcing uncertainty into the one place I had at that time to feel safe and comfortable. I was constantly ill at ease at the crag, and our camper was supposed to be free from worry. But the mice were taking that away from me. In the morning, while boiling water for coffee, I'd open the cabinet and the drawer, put on one of our leather gloves that was formerly reserved for belaying on cold days, pry back the metal bar on the trap, and fling any rodent victims into the woods. Eleven months into our year-long trip, we spent about six weeks camped off the old road in Ten Sleep, Wyoming. And one morning, I got up to make coffee, my partner still asleep in bed, and there was a mouse sitting in the sink, chewing on our sponge, despite my sophisticated defense system. You're supposed to be gone by morning, I yelled. What do I do, I asked. Just trap it and take it outside, my partner said groggily from bed, justifiably annoyed at the early morning yelling. Furious, I grabbed our giant popcorn bowl and a plate and tried to corner the mouse, who immediately ran into the far corner of the counter, too narrow for my bowl to be of any use. Help, I shouted, close to tears. I don't know what to tell you, Fred, he said. A couple tries later, I got the mouse into the bowl, 
covered it with the plate, opened the door of the camper, and flung it outside. I then watched in disbelief as the mouse flew through the air, landed on the ground, barely paused to take a breath, and then ran straight back into the camper, up through the magic portal that leads past the steel wool barriers directly into the sink in under 30 seconds. Having mastered my technique and driven by my righteous anger, I trapped the mouse in the bowl once more and put on some shoes. Not taking any chances this time, I walked that mouse probably 15 minutes away from our campsite, up the hill, away from the road, and into the forest, before tossing him out while doing my best impression of Mike Myers' Shrek, banishing the creatures from the swamp. And stay out. I walked back, smoothing my hair and trying to regain my dignity. I re-entered the camper to make coffee, where my partner was still happily laying in bed, playing Scrabble on his phone, and munching on flavor-blasted goldfish. How'd it go? He grinned at me. This is episode five of Buddy Check, of Mice and Mentorship. Today's episode is all about reclaiming control of your climbing experience. As Hazel mentioned, she has a course that includes a chapter on taking responsibility for your own climbing journey which includes asking yourself what you want out of it in the first place. Becca Wallingford, too, who you heard from in episode three, also found that one of the primary themes from the interviews she conducted was the way that climbing allowed the women she interviewed to reclaim a sense of control and self-efficacy from within an experience of mental illness. I honestly didn't think that the dominant theme would be taking back control. And then hearing stories and then thinking about myself and my friends and all these other people, it just made so much sense, especially after someone has experienced trauma in which they felt out of control. And let's be real, like it doesn't have to be an extreme event. Trauma doesn't have a checklist. In asking ourselves why we climb, we can not only set ourselves up to measure our goals and success, based on the metrics that matter to us, but also to own our experience of the sport. We can intentionally craft our climbing and reclaim control of it if we've lost that for whatever reason. That does resonate with me. And I've actually done some thinking about this too. And, and I think this is why romantic relationships, it, heterosexual romantic relationships with men as the woman are so dependent upon the culture that we're in, right? Like, and because of that, there's so much that gets wrapped up in how we behave across the board in our romantic relationships. And so I think the fear piece for me is like, one, trying to navigate their expectations of me, which is something that, you know, women are socialized to participate in is the expectations other people have of them. And I'll say like, my experience personally with the fear aspect is, navigating his expectations of me while climbing, but also not feeling safe to do whatever I needed to do to release my nervous system buildup in order to like release that fear. So I wasn't taking care of myself in a way that would allow me to overcome that fear. And so now being in a romantic relationship now with a man who I trust fully and also I'm not performing for, I do what I need to when I'm scared, which 
for me when I'm scared when I'm climbing involves a lot of like growling and like yelling and making a lot of fear noises and I overcome that fear through that kind of nervous system release and so I really think that that played like a huge role in my ability to climb the things that I wanted to climb which were I guess harder things because I was so wrapped up in not being able to try hard because I felt like I might embarrass myself in front of him. When something is so integrated into our lives, it's hard to keep the personal. It becomes personal, I guess. So the personal aspects of my relationship became very intertwined with my climbing relationship with that person, obviously. And I'll say like when we first started climbing together and learning to climb together, it was really fun and it was an adventure and we learned to rely on each other and it you know we we were both coming from pretty mentally unstable places as young people i i was 19 he was um 21 and we had had just like some hard things that had been going on in our lives at that time and so we really bonded pretty quickly um over this sport where you have to trust each other and um we ended up spending a lot of time together Fast forward seven years, um, we were together for seven years. We actually got married um, and subsequently divorced. <laughs> uh, but so that part of my climbing experience was so wrapped up in my personal relationship with him because for so long, he was my primary climbing partner. His expectations for himself really ended up becoming integrated into my perception of climbing. And so, you know, like I wouldn't let myself top rope. Well, I definitely top rope now. I top rope my projects and then send them. You know, like I wouldn't, you know, I got like weirdly wrapped up in his ego um, and his ego got very wrapped up in my climbing ability. And so the last like year or two of our relationship, climbing was actually kind of a dark place for me because my relationship was dark. And since that relationship has ended, I've made climbing completely my own again, as it felt like when I first learned. By the time we were in tent sleep, my fears about climbing had surpassed both my partner's patience and his teaching skill set. He didn't understand how I could be equally terrified on 5'7 and 5'12. And to be fair, neither did I. So he had dug his heels into an exposure therapy strategy for getting me over it. Essentially, the more you avoid this, the more you're going to stay afraid climb through the fear. There's no other way. And he was right that avoiding it wouldn't get me through it. But the rest was more of a pee into the wind, do the giant rope swing off El Cap, jump into the bath of spiders version of exposure therapy, rather than the slow burn approach that Hazel described. So by month 11, I had my systems dialed, not only for managing the mice, but also for my climbing. Block the oven with duct tape. Grit my teeth up a 12A close to his project. Remove the metal grates. Send second go so I don't have to try again. Set the bowls over the burners. If I don't send, promise I'll try again tomorrow. Put on this empty northern hemisphere. 
Agree that I'll never be less afraid if I don't try again. Wait for the chewing sounds to start. Accept that there are only two options. Go again or fight about why I don't want to. Use the leather glove to peel back the metal trigger. Hide my tears by packing up my bag, unable to tie in again. Fling the mouse out the door. Hike out, closing the conversation until tomorrow, never getting to the root of either problem. Sometimes when you're in something, it's really hard to see any other way. And it can take going back and asking why you're doing what you're doing to see a different option. This episode is sponsored by Maple Syrup Punk. Hold on to your butts. The moment you've been waiting for is just around the corner. That's right, hunk. Maple syrup season is upon us. Every March and April, the hardworking hunks put in their taps and empty their buckets, sending thousands of gallons of sap down their sap lines to be boiled into sweet maple syrup. Maple syrup hunk products are designed for climbers, runners, and all active folks. During physical activities like climbing, running, or backpacking, your body can deplete its glycogen stores, leading to low blood sugar levels and severely affecting your ability to perform. Consuming sugar during prolonged exercise helps maintain mental clarity and keeps your hunky self motivated. The virtual shelves over at maplesyrupunk.com are a little bare this time of year, but with their pre-order community-supported agriculture box, or CSA box, which is now available, you'll lock down a box of fresh maple goodies. By pre-ordering your 2024 maple treats, you'll also be supporting the hunks to replace any sap lines, buckets, or other needed supplies that help to ensure a successful season. It's a win-win. Each box includes some of their infused maple syrup energy gels, a pint of pure wood-fired maple syrup, and a few special gifts just for your sexy self. Use promo code BUDDYCHECK for 15% off. That's promo code BUDDYCHECK for 15% off at maplesyrupunk.com. Send it, hunk. And now back to the episode. And since that relationship has ended, I've made climbing completely my own again, as it felt like when I first learned. Thank you for sharing that. I, um... It's crazy how much I resonate with everything you just said. I really understand that feeling. Um, that's like part of this project for me is like my journey of trying to make climbing mine again. Yeah, I love that for you. I love it for me too. It's been ama- It's been an amazing moment for me. And I think the biggest thing that has affected it was just really deciding if climbing, is climbing still my thing? Or am I just doing it out of like this, compulsive drive because it's been a thing that I've done and based my perception of myself upon after I got divorced I did so much self-work and like wasn't even just about him it was about like coming into my own anyways and so climbing was a huge part of that again the first thing I think that helped me the most in overcoming fear after I was a very fearful climber on and off for a long time throughout my relationship was like, I just like took away 
any expectation of climbing a certain grade, which was the first time I'd ever done that. I started climbing and I was fairly intuitive for me. So I picked it up pretty easily. And so I was climbing like 511 within the first year. And so then I think things just like felt like, oh, well, if I'm already at 511 now, I need to like continue to push it harder, harder, harder. And because of that, I like, I think there was a level of fear even associated with that. It wasn't like necessarily fear of failure, but I did not have enough experience just like building a pathway in my brain that was like telling me that everything's chill and fine. So I just kept trying harder and harder shit. And so I just like went out and I started like actually building a base for the first time in a long time. And I think a lot of that too plays into what we talked about with like the significant other where his ego was like harder, 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 harder. And so I was climbing harder, harder, harder. And I did not have a like a significant base. I had not climbed very many 510s. And like I sent 513 before I sent 12C. Like I needed to go back and (laughs) try again because it really made a big difference in my me like trusting my body and trusting the rock and like burning that pathway in my brain. And I think that was like something that I wish I had tried to do earlier. And I'm grateful that I figured it out eventually. Yeah, just like really going back and getting on easier climbs um, made a big difference. A couple episodes ago, I mentioned that before I knew her story, I wanted to talk to Gil because I had heard an anecdote about her that she had once said, I won't ever teach another guy to climb. And I had heard plenty of guys bemoan, I'll never teach another woman to belay. But I never heard that sentiment from a woman before. So I asked her about it. I do remember saying that because it is still true. And it turns out it all relates back to this. This feeling that yes, post-divorce, Climbing is still my thing. And it was such a resounding yes that reclaiming control of the experience has meant being selective in how she spends her time climbing. I got very protective over climbing actually over the last, like after I got divorced and really figured out that, like, okay, climbing is my thing still. Like, this is something I do for myself. And I think I even had like a pendulum swing after that relationship where climbing was something we did together where I was just like, no, climbing is something I do. And if you love it as much as I do, you can come do it with me, but I'm not going to like sacrifice my time outside to cater to whatever learning opportunity you are hoping to foster here. Just like I asked most of the people I interviewed, how were they first introduced to climbing? I also asked a lot of them, How do you define why you climb? I always felt like, like kind of a weird person, I guess. And climbers are all really weird. (laughs) So just like if there's a a fit there, you know, and sort of this maybe lifestyle and, and the way people think or, or something that, you know, has just sort of always felt comfortable to me. And, you know, I mean, obviously it's not like every climber I meet, I like, or anything like that, or every group or you know but it's it's just I think an overall good feeling of community and and now I have friends all over you know that climb and so that's really fun too like I can I'm in Seattle I have friends to climb with or if I'm in Arizona I have friends to climb with you know and that's that's a fun thing to have as well so yeah I think that's one big reason it's 
incorporated in my life so much. And I kind of, I think also I just kind of like that there isn't so much purpose to it, you know, like it's kind of its own thing you do that doesn't really have to have like a lot of meaning behind it. You're not like, you know, I think I feel like with my job and stuff, it's like, there's always so much on the line with like working at a firm and money and, you know, time and, and people getting mad about this or that, you know, and it's kind of the opposite of that. (laughs) So, I mean, there's stress obviously in climbing, but not, not in the same way, I guess. I grew up playing soccer and I grew up dancing ballet. And so I think there was sort of this kind of a unique combination of, you know, the physicality, but also sort of like the importance of movement and technique and that sort of thing. And then, you know, that was sort of reminiscent of all my ballet days <laughs> and and sort of honestly, the sort of control aspect overall, you sort of feel like you're controlling your own safety and your own body and that kind of thing. And, and just sort of being able to like, I mean, this used to happen to me with both soccer and dance, you know, you sort of get really in the zone, like feeling of like nothing else matters outside of what you're doing at that moment. And, you know, getting that on the wall is such a good feeling. I think for sure the, the mental aspect of climbing is really exciting for me. Meditation has helped a lot because when you're scared, a lot of the times it's thoughts of fear that are coming up and then you kind of just have to cut through it and like just focus back on what you're doing and I think that coming back and refocusing on like what's presently at hand that is a skill that for sure transfers over and I think that's part of the reason why I like climbing so much because it's a very engaged physical form of meditation and the sort of um, self-reliance you're kind of doing this on your own like you're the one who's making upward movement and then with trad climbing it's really interesting because you're kind of like figuring out how you want your gear to be like how much gear do you want this section and like also like conserving gear so it's very mental mentally active I don't know it's funny because I'm not really a gearhead before I did a lot of dance and you don't need any equipment for dance. You actually just need to like take off your shoes. You just need less stuff. Um, so it's kind of surprising that I actually like trad climbing because it's so like gear centric. But there's just something so satisfying about actually like you get to see like some progress. You were once on the ground and then you're n- now on top of something, <laughs> which is really, really incredible. And like, you know, a sense of empowerment. So there's like that aspect of it. And then the other aspect is just like the movement is very, very fun and like creative. And I really like that kind of corporeal thinking type thing, like where it's, you're not really thinking with your mind, but your body. Yeah. I mean, I think let's cliche it up. Yeah. It changed my life. It's done the best things for me. And I mean, I've structured like multiple components of my life at this point around climbing you know I got a job that allowed me to travel and be outside I've my friend groups primarily are people that spend their time in the mountains whether it's climbing or just being outside and I think those things have like yeah saved me in in a lot of ways um it's bettered a lot of relationships that I have it's introduced me 
to a lot of new relationships. It's just changed the way I, I, I view relationships in my day to day, you know, like a, a lot of my relationships aren't like stagnant, they're ever changing. And um, my ability to hold on and like, oh, the friendships and relationships has, has, has adapted a lot over the years. But yeah, no, I, I think, I think in the, in the simplest way, yeah, it's, it's made my life simpler and more enjoyable and the relationships that have come with it have, have been some of the best I've had. And I mean, for this interview specifically, and just my relationship with my brother, I mean, like we're best friends on so many different levels. Um, and climbing is a big part of that. I think it is the part of that that made us so close, honestly. So I'm super grateful for that. I mean, just as a kid, I was super active and played outside just constantly. And so I would just climb trees all the time with my brother and my neighbors. And my mom had me in just a little gymnastics class when I was a kid. I like semi remember the gymnastics, but mostly I remember like staring over at this little climbing wall that was on the side of the gymnastics, the gymnastics part of the gym. And then there was, there was a very tiny climbing part of the gym where there would just be occasionally people climbing over there. I don't even think it was big at all, but in my mind as a tiny child, it was this huge, amazing climbing wall that I really wanted to do. And there was only ever adults over there and I couldn't wait to be an adult so I could try climbing. Um, so I would just gaze over there and daydream about it. Yeah. And I remember one of my, one of my friend's moms, so she had like five boys and I was the only girl who played with them. <laughs> She's like, you know, Lisa, you would be really, you would be really good at rock climbing. And I was like, yes, I would. <laughs> I think I was like five or something. <laughs> I was like rock climbing. Now it's like, okay, I'm just like climbing for the long haul sort of thing. If I have an injury or like the pandemic happened, happened and I wasn't climbing almost at all. And I came back and I was like climbing V2. Like this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I'm never like beat down by it. I'm like, well, eventually I'll get back to it. But I guess it's just like because I've been climbing for so long and had so many like ups and downs. I don't know. It's all fun. <laughs> climbing 5'9 is also really fun. Climbing 5'8 is great. I mean, the other, yeah. Oh, wow. Like I was just, I was climbing this V1 in the gym and I was just like, had this moment where I was like, man, this is just so fun. I love this. But yeah, I mean, I also have those moments when I'm climbing like the hardest that I can possibly push myself. So. Yeah, I feel I feel lucky. I, I feel lucky. It's brought me like, I mean, most of the good friends that I've ever had in my entire life and my longest friendships. It's brought me that most of my best friends I can tie back to climbing in some way. It's brought me like just an opportunity for amazing adventure that I never would have had otherwise, you know, traveling all over the place and meeting all these really cool people from all over the world. It's brought me like kind of a, a drive to try hard and train and like have some sort of a goal point. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, I don't even know what my life would look out like without it since I've been climbing for so long. Yeah. It's just a great joy. 
last August, I went back to tent sleep and ended up camping in the exact same place as on that trip three years ago. When I first parked, I cried for a minute, feeling the loss of my former partner and the vision of our life together. I was on high alert for sounds of chewing throughout that first night, and I woke up with a clenched jaw, an anxious heart, and the memory of feeling like if I couldn't go to the crag, try at my limit, and have a good time, that my relationship would be in jeopardy. In the three years since I last camped in that meadow, though, a lot has changed. I turned around and asked myself if I wanted to keep climbing. And it turned out that I did. Why was that? For the long, sunny days outside, with people I love, to play with movement in my body, to challenge my perceptions of what I think I can do. So I went back to the beginning. I climbed easy routes inside until I genuinely felt bored. I read books on mental training. I went to therapy and worked on my mental health so I wasn't starting routes from a place of such heightened anxiety. I reached out to friends who I felt safe with to work through my fear on lead. I started bouldering to learn how to trust myself to go for moves I wasn't sure I could stick. That first day in tent sleep this past August, I had a great time. I wasn't afraid. I was happy. That night, I read a short story by Mary Oliver about a dog her family had growing up that would never stay tethered in their yard, but was beloved by everyone in the neighborhood and would always get brought home safely, even by a sympathetic animal control officer. She ends her story asking what the point of telling it was. And she writes, maybe it's about the wonderful things that may happen if you break the ropes that are holding you. Next time on Buddy Check, enough about me. We'll hear from two climbing guides about the benefits of receiving mentorship from a guide.